Welcome back to another episode of the Quantum Cast. I'm your host Ryan Kier, and in this episode, I'm going to be focusing on tech. But before we look at some of the sectors within here, it's probably important to give a little bit of context for those who aren't familiar with what's going on right now amid such crazy volatility. If we take ourselves all the way back to the 19th of February, that's when we had this issue going on right now of a virus spreading and contagion, the fears that essentially sent markets in drawdowns of roughly 30 to 40 percent. If you look around, you'd see that most indexes seem to have bottomed around mid-March. And now I'm recording this on the 29th of April 2020, late at night. So markets in the UK have closed, but the US markets are still open. It seems that if we look at yearly performance across a couple of indexes, the markets aren't down that much. By your textbook 20% recession scenario, we're kind of teetering on the edge to the point where, is this the end of a bear market? That's the kind of thought coming to your mind. Or is this the beginning of a new bull market? Or is this simply just a dead cat bounce? We don't know at the moment without digging deeper into any of that. It seems that if you talk to a lot of investors in the community right now, these are some examples of the thoughts on their mind. To help us create some context for what stage we're at now, I've cherry picked the data for the NASDAQ, which is essentially a representation of the technology sector. In the US, it seems that the technology sector is the greatest amongst most international competitors. But if you look at the NASDAQ, you can see that its performance was roughly unchanged. And I put that at plus or minus 1%, so 1% either side. It's important to remember that I measured this data yesterday. The NASDAQ's up roughly 2% today. So if we think about it logically, the NASDAQ might actually be positive for the year. How crazy is that to even comprehend? If you think about a recession happening at the moment, which GDP statistics in the US seem to have confirmed, and if we look at PMI data as well, you've seen a lot of countries having their manufacturing index data, their purchasing managers index, which is the PMI data. They've seen that below 45. And that's generally when you start to think that a recession is on the horizon. I'm not sure if in the last episode we mentioned about the Chinese PMI data for both manufacturing and servicing, but we saw all-time lows. But then for the month after, the PMI data for China seemed to be much more positive than its levels pre-coronavirus, so it recovered as if this were a one-off, an anomaly in the data set. And before we get all political, saying that the Chinese figures are false, whilst in most cases that assumption would be true, this is essentially a survey. The PMI data for both manufacturing and services accounts as a survey for essentially industry confidence. If you see good levels there, you can see that industries are working well. If that figure is below 45 in any nation, you tend to think that something's going on. But once again, relative to previous levels, everything looks quite ugly right now. And that PMI data, the, the recovery month at the moment, could not really mean anything because this one month of horrible data could potentially harm the economy in the long run. This is simply because when governments can subsidize certain industries that are suffering, they can guarantee firms debt, they can't essentially cover their revenues. What's the government gonna do? Cover all the revenues for a business on an extremely tight profit margin. Let's use Carillion in the past. Let's assume they were still a business, they've gone bankrupt. But let's assume that Carillion had, what was it? billions of revenue and only 40 million in net profit, what's the government going to do? Cover all their revenue? Imagine the damage in long-term contracts, existing infrastructural agreements. The setbacks are not going to be a one-off scenario. In my opinion, after such a strong recovery, it seems that markets haven't priced in 
the total amount of risk for the long term. For example, the unexpected losses on credit derivatives trading for large banks, oil price crashing and the hedge effects, the, the huge losses that might be encountered by many airlines. We saw EasyJet report hundreds of millions in losses from hedges on oil, and that was before a further crash where we actually saw prices for the May future contracts for WTI oil going negative. Negative to the extent where we saw it negative around 40-something dollars, which essentially meant that you could buy a contract and receive $40. But to do that, you would have to organize a physical delivery for the oil itself, which meant tankers were soaring in value because they were now being commissioned to essentially store these barrels, this excess production that couldn't be shipped off because of what's going on with the coronavirus right now. People essentially can't go from place to place. Borders have been shut down in emergency measures. Countries, entire nations have been shut down. As if you're in the UK listening to this, it's possible that we can all relate in these lockdown measures right now. But by these nations being closed, families' earnings are at risk to the extent where a lot of people are going to be put out of work. We've seen in America 26 million people in the month of March, I believe, or, or a one-month time span, had lost their jobs. That, I believe, is the total amount of jobs that have been created since the Great Depression. That is a lot of unemployment. We're talking levels of 3% unemployment going to 5%, at risks of going potentially all the way to 13%. We're talking huge levels of unemployment. And the crazy thing is, this isn't coming from some third world country. This is coming from the strongest economy in the world, arguably, right now. The United States of America. And if all this has happened in just one month, it's scary, frankly, to think about what's going to happen over the next couple of months. Even if we start to see a recovery in economic activity, the long-term impact on many companies, companies going from being healthy in terms of their leverage to becoming extremely over leveraged to the extent that they are the likes of Cineworld or something. But Cineworld actually was over levered before. It worked with their business model. Unfortunately, though, they are now at risk of potentially breaching their covenants, which essentially means that they could be going into administration. That is just a potential situation. I don't know. But if, if problems go on, shutdowns persist, what are governments going to do? Guarantee revenue? I don't know about that. For a lot of businesses in the UK, for self-employed people, you've got certain job retention schemes. You've got certain income areas that are being covered. But we don't know how long this can go on for. And more importantly, are we going to see inflation to the extent where, say, in the US, there's been so much credit that has been printed, essentially, QE, the creation of credit, money printing. The money printer goes burr when everyone talks about it. That could lead to severe levels of inflation because all of this currency that's being printed isn't really back to much. That's the problem. And if we look at the UK as well, it makes you wonder about the consequences of the UK taking on such a large deficit. We might see future generations paying, the future taxpayers paying at the expense of our mistakes at the current moment. But the problem is, it's because of a virus, it's a shutdown, we don't really know what to do. The trade-off, essentially, is between millions of lives from employment, which essentially leads to people having more issues with their mental health. If you have to worry about your personal finances all the time, whether you're going to be able to put food on the table, it's going to stress you out, you're probably going to have a shorter life expectancy. The trade-off right now, as we've mentioned, is between this and the amount of people that can die from the virus. 
Because if a lot of people have mental health problems and say to the extent where you're not able to put food on the table and you're trying your best, there are some families that were suffering who were already in employment, but the cost of living for them was high in areas like London. You're probably going to see property prices come back down to, to normalize levels. A lot of people have been talking about asking prices lower than 13% at the moment, and that's unofficially. When the official records come out, we'd probably look for things fall back to an actual level. You're not going to see property prices fall 30 to 50%. You'll probably see them fall 13, 20 something percent, and then they will start recovering again when people are in good situations. But the issue is, if you don't have a strong standard of living for all your dear inhabitants living in a country, you're probably going to have a lot of long-term costs, whether that's through health, whether that's the potential losses of additional revenue from people being unemployed instead of being in work. The situation looks very dire, but in terms of positives, it's really important to note that the rate that you'd be paying if you were to borrow a lot as a company right now would be very low, especially in comparison to historical standards. You see, for consumers like us, it's difficult to borrow, say, for a mortgage right now without a strong loan-to-deposit ratio. Some banks have started to reel down these measures, ease them off a little bit to the point where you could probably get what you could before. But the rates haven't cut yet, with interest rates now right now at 0.15% in the UK. But the bonus is that you can borrow at really low rates if you're a business owner or say you work for a company and you're looking to help it expand its operations. If we look at the US 10-year, it's down over 130 basis points, the 0.61%. Essentially, people aren't that attracted to the yields. The bond prices have increased, but the yields, therefore, have decreased. And if you look at the two-year, that's on 135 basis points to 0.2%. So on the other end, to lend money, you're not looking at getting a huge return. So banks are probably going to end up cutting their, their rates for consumers, but then their costs of borrowing on the overnight money markets are going to decrease, which means essentially they can have better margins on that front. An interesting statistic I came across the other day was the German bond. It was called the 10-year Bund, a B-U-N-D, that's how they spell it. And that gives a yield of minus 0.5%. It's weird to actually think about that. It essentially means that to lend money, you have to pay. So you lose money in terms of your coupon for holding those bonds. But essentially, they would say that it is something that you would hold if you think that the markets are going to crash and all assets are going to be worthless, which is a really stupid outlook on most things. But ironically enough, in August 2019, the German government managed to sell 869 million euros of 30-year bonds with a negative yield. And this was for the first time ever. And apparently, if we look worldwide, there's $15 trillion of existing negative yielding debt. So it seems that some people don't seem to think like us when it comes to, to that respect. But I mean, maybe they're trying to take a little loss instead of lose all your money on small caps, aka penny stocks, if you'd like to put them like that, on the AIM markets in the UK or... Uh, in the US or anywhere in the world that has little amounts of regulation, it seems that you'd probably be better off taking the negative yield instead of getting involved in investment right now, thinking that you're going to get rich quick, which essentially is not how the markets work. Because if we look at the markets right now, you're probably seeing 
The market's up around 30% from lows. So what are you going to do buy now? Why didn't you buy before if you think stocks are going to recover from this? It's as if people move like a herd. We're approaching resistance across most indexes. You'd assume once that resistance level's hit, a lot of people are going to start saying, we're going to hit lows again. A lot of hedge fund managers are going to be coming out on CNBC. They're going to be coming out on Bloomberg and saying, I think that these shares are going to crash. We're going to see new lows. Indexes are extremely overvalued. Essentially, the biggest problem of following the herd is that they all tend to talk about something after the fact. You see the markets make lows, people are starting to talk about them now. Well, we're 30% off lows. People talk about the worst recession of all time. Well, it doesn't seem like it by historical standards. In terms of the period between the beginning of the market drawdown and the depths of the market drawdown around mid-March, we've actually seen a strong recovery across many stocks. Some stocks, some large caps with multi-billion pound valuations are 100%, maybe even 200% off their lows. And yet people are still thinking that they are cheap to buy. There is a possibility there, but we have to think of everything when it's happening, not after the fact. What's the point of buying now if you were bullish back mid-March? Without using too much hindsight, you really should have been buying then, selling now, and buying back if we were to return to similar levels to essentially hedge your risk. Get to a scenario where you don't end up consistently losing, buying at the top, selling at the bottom, and then being right in principle, but getting the timing wrong. So after looking back at such crazy volatility, it's probably good to shine the spotlight on a particular sector. We've discussed a couple of different variables right now, but I think one sector that we should be shining the spotlight on in particular is the technology sector. The reason being the large amount of market capitalization in terms of relative proportions that is made up by companies in the technology sector. So we've got anything from your Facebook to your Microsoft, those big guys, to your e-commerce firms for food delivery, such as Okado and HelloFresh. You've got anything from systems, whatever, really. But essentially what I've done is I've divided up the areas that I would say, the sectors rather, that are integral to a daily working world, and they are all down. If we look at them as a whole and we take out anomalies, so things like Amazon and stuff aren't included, but we're looking at the vast majority of constituents, and it seems that the majority of them are down. So even though the markets have bounced back, if you look at the majority of the companies that are out there on the public stock exchange, you can see that most of them are down. Even though the markets may have recovered quite aggressively in recent weeks, the majority of these constituents are down. It seems that the larger companies are keeping the indexes from suffering more. And it may be possible that when these larger companies within the index, these larger constituents, so for example, your Amazon, your Facebook, Google, Google just had an earnings beat, which was less worse, should we say, than the previous expectation, which doesn't really mean that they beat their earnings, but it seems that the shares rallied four or five percent or so from the last time I looked at them. And that's for the 29th of April today when I'm recording. But those shares, once they start to pull back down, we could see new lows being tested across indexes. So with these four sectors that I was looking at, for those unfamiliar with any of the sectors, I've got a couple of examples. When we look at systems, we'll think about guys like TomTom, traded in the US, I believe. And their shares are down over 30%. They've obviously bounced back a little bit, but they seem to have been lagging. And this lag is relative to their peers. So you see the larger caps, the mega caps, we should call them blue chip companies, 10 billion and above, seem to have been doing quite well. 
you've got Oka though, which is a cross between software and internet and e-commerce because their model is mixed between revenue from software solutions and also the retail delivery systems that they would be putting in place for their own business because they're essentially another grocery business. But uh, their shares have actually been rallying quite a bit. If I look at my notes here, I can see they're up almost 40% since mid-February. And uh, that was the market peak that I'd use for this data set, roughly February 19th, should we say, as we mentioned earlier. But you look at other companies that are involved in software and we could use Microfocus. They're down over 50% in that same period. Now, what does this mean? If we look at both of them, Okado had roughly a market cap around six, seven billion pounds. They were, should we say, your mega cap. Microfocus, about two, three billion or so. There's not much of a huge difference between the two, but you can see that investors have taken solace in companies that seem to have higher market caps. I don't actually know the reason why. Maybe it's conventional models of hedge funds. Who knows? Who knows, really? Pension funds or whatever. We don't have the answer to that. But it's an interesting observation that can be made. If we look across at services, we can use the example of IBM, which recently showed their first quarter earnings and their revenue was down 3%. And they also happened to withdraw their guidance for the rest of the year. And if you look across a lot of companies in this service sector, you'll see that a lot of them have withdrawn their guidance as well. Now, why have I used IBM to represent this sector? I think that IBM is traditionally a rubbish company in terms of innovation. They're one of those guys that really just want to keep a traditional model and they're getting outdone by their peers. Essentially, IBM is the general motors of their industry. And you've seen the likes of Tesla come in the automotive industry, innovate and take over their market valuations. But then you look at IBM, you've seen competitors like uh, all sorts, really. Apple taking over different areas that they weren't innovating in. They stopped R&D spending in a lot of areas. IBM suffered consequences because of that. But also in the services industry, you've got your e-travel guys, as I like to put it. Essentially e-commerce for travel and tourism. You've got companies like, I believe, lastminute.com, which are listed as Last Minute Group. You've got eDreams as well. They're both down almost 60% apiece. Yes, I know for some reason the margins are quite low and the valuation is quite high, but uh, they seem to be doing their job better than anybody else in the area. Once again, you can replicate such algorithms to a certain extent, but I think that they've been beaten up a bit too much. When travel resumes, people are going to still look to get cheap flights, especially if the economic situation is a little worse. Whilst that sounds like a really simple judgment, why do you see these kind of companies getting battered 60% or so? They don't have lease liabilities like existing retail stores. They, they don't have uh, huge staff costs. Really, most of it is online and uh, most of it is algorithmically based. They set you as a third party and they get their cut. I'm surprised how these companies haven't rebounded much. But once again, the indexes have rebounded, but these shares, for some reason, are still near lows. You look at companies like Centrica in the UK, for, for gas and electric, completely different to tech or anything. Whilst the entire market began to rebound at uh, the depth of the market drawdown mid-March, I noticed that Centrica hadn't rebounded that much. Shares like Aston Martin and all that. But that's because there isn't much upside to the business. They have a lot of existing costs. And when you have a shutdown, you don't really have much revenue coming. 
with with Centrica, it's existing revenue at potentially negative margins, which is the problem. An unsustainable business model. With Aston Martin, essentially the same. You may be loss-making in some scenarios. You may not be selling enough to even cover your costs. But with eDreams and LastMinute.com, the thing that interests me is that the business model is quite simple. Can it be replicated? Potentially so. But uh, you haven't really seen many people come to take their existing market positions. You've got the whole cheapflights.com and everything. There's plenty of business to go around in this current area. I just think, why are they battered so much? That to me is confusing. I don't have a position in any of these stocks, but I'm just trying to create a picture for what's going on right now. When the market's down, it doesn't mean that every stock is down. You've seen once again, Okado outperforming. Is there anything else I could find? ASOS, they uh, had fallen to roughly £10 a share from £30, and then they went to £21 a share. I assume they'd be up today. I haven't checked them since. But that was 100% off lows. Not really much of a drawdown from highs, to be honest. But then again, they are online. They don't have as much cost as your traditional retail. If Debenhams were still around, they'd probably go bust, even with emergency government support. TUI, for example. I talked about them being a company at risk of going bust before this crisis going on. I don't see a way that they can really survive with their business model at the current moment in time. But what you'd probably see is a rights issue. And then you'd see them come out and say, nah, uh, the government has given us emergency support of a billion pounds because we need it. Otherwise, tens of thousands of people are going to lose their job. The government's going to feel pressured. But the problem is those businesses were existingly rubbish at having an ability to generate profit. They didn't have an ability. They were inherently flawed. They could not make money. And when they did make money, it was at the expense of existing debt to the point where in the long term, you'd just be creating a bubble that would just pop and ruin your entire business. I could give an example of another company that was already struggling pre the coronavirus or COVID-19 crisis, Capita Group. Their shares are essentially at lows. I think their lows were around 30 pence a share and their highs around the 19th of February were about 150 pence a share. The fact that they're trading at just under 40 pence right now means that they haven't really recovered. When a stock is down 72% after a 20-30% recovery, I can't see anyone having the grounds to say that this company has recovered. It seems that the overall market has bounced more than these guys have which essentially to me means that the market doesn't believe that firms like this can recover. Investors are using any bounce as an opportunity to get whatever remains from these companies into their pockets. Capita historically underperformed the market ever since uh, the industry started to take a turn for the worst. If you look at, uh, we mentioned firms like TUI, they were struggling. TUI had already been down roughly 50% pre-coronavirus and they, they took another 50% haircut and then they took another 50% there at the uh, bottom of the crisis around two pounds a share. They're, they're now around three pounds a share. But we were talking about them at 10 pounds 60 of a grossly overvalued company. Why? Purely because they've struggled to keep up with the competition. If we look at firms like Debenhams, they were not doing anything unique. If we look at Blockbuster, they were not doing anything unique. Competitors come and take away things from them. They take away the business model. They make it easier. They make it simpler in terms of being able to make money. And what happens? These guys are forced out of the market. What's going to happen now? Is it likely that these firms are going to get bailouts, emergency bailouts by the government? I don't know. I mean, I hope for the employees' sake 
Not the management, of course, of whom are taking grossly excessive bonuses, but I hope for the employee's sake that things sort out with those companies. But it doesn't seem to be unless they were to get some emergency bailouts or have some last minute rights issues. So to conclude this episode, what am I avoiding? I'm avoiding anything that is consumer to consumer based. Those businesses are most at risk. Such businesses are the kind of ones that even when the lockdown is over, are likely going to see lower levels of footfall. So retail. Retail's already been battered though. It's possible that when the lockdown is over, these companies are going to have record quarters. What does that mean? Nothing if they've accumulated so much debt that they might not even live until the end of the next quarter. It's maybe something temporary. Things like Cineworld that I mentioned, I feel that there's a chance that they could breach their financial covenants. I think uh, I have nothing with the business model in terms of negativity. I, I think uh, it's a simple, smart business and it was well managed. Now, the only problem is the crisis has happened and as investors, we have to act. The problem is they've borrowed way too much money. Looking before, maybe that wouldn't be the case. But if you look now, they are definitely over levered to the point where they might breach financial covenants, which essentially means they're at risk of having some emergency fundraising, a huge discount. They can't really borrow any more money in this situation or just going bust. I think a business of that size would probably have to stop acquiring any things in the pipeline. So they were trying to buy Cineplex, a Canadian company worth about two billion pounds equivalent. They might not be able to do that. But if we try and envisage the impact on these companies post lockdown in a world where lockdown doesn't exist, Cineworld, for example, has the overwhelming majority of its revenues coming from the US. So they're probably going to start seeing their revenues coming back. The problem is that they might be seeing lower levels of footfall because you can't fit as many people in each theater. The same goes for businesses that are involved in travel, buses, coaches, trains, or even airlines. The likely outcome is that you're going to see these businesses having lower levels of revenue versus normalized periods. And what I mean by normalized periods is the archetypal, the average revenues that have been achieved in a normal quarter, for example. So 2019 Q1 versus 2020 Q1. 2020 Q1 is probably going to be worse because from March onwards, we'd seen lockdowns. And technically that counts as a month of lost revenues for most businesses in the area. The thing is though, if we look at businesses that are not consumer to consumer through direct contact, if we look at the ones that are online, they're obviously going to be faring much better. Are there a lot of alternatives? I'm not really sure. Being completely honest here, my bias is to the short side because when you have a full-blown crisis kick in, the likelihood is you'll see shares that are large caps suffer and they drag down the small and mid caps even further to the point where indexes are near peak drawdowns again. We'll just have to wait and see. In terms of trading, I think we're approaching a near-term top. The S&P 500 is roughly 29.30, uh, so $2,930. I think that the top will be around $3,000. I could be wrong, but in terms of trading, I would switch my short bias there. That's my plan ahead of days like tomorrow, where there's probably going to be a lot of volatility. I hope that this podcast has helped generate some ideas or at least create a bigger picture of what's going on from anything from technology to travel and tourism to cinemas, restaurants, retail, whatever you'd like to look at. There are some companies that we've discussed here that may be of interest and also the macro picture is really important to remember 
Tonight we've got the Fed making an announcement. There aren't really any expectations going into it, which means that you're probably going to see a bullish reaction, in my opinion, because there's probably going to be some unexpected stimulus, the old money printer going brr, credit. And we're also waiting on Trump talking about how he's going to help the US shale industry. I'd be surprised to see what happens if he puts tariffs. Who knows whether oil prices are going to react positively. They might be down, but for Americans, they'd be all right. The problem is trade deals with places like Saudi. Are they going to be on strong terms in the future if you put tariffs? I don't know. We'll have to see. I hope that if you made it this far, by listening to this episode, you may have been able to start recapping what was going on over the past couple of months to the present day. My biggest hope is that you'll be better prepped in your investment journeys. I've been Ryan Keir of quantumresearch.co.uk. You can find me on Twitter at Ryan Keir too. Until next time.